Steve Jackson Games for Nordcast, Episode 8, April 30th, 2007. Fenordcast number eight has finally pulled itself from the vat. Some of its much-needed protein had to be diverted to GURPS martial arts for a while. This episode has a shameless plug and asked Dr. Krom some interviews from the Floor of Games Expo and a conversation between the marketing guys. Ross was down from Canada a little while ago, and he and Paul sat down to talk about his gaming past and Munchkin. Welcome to the Fenordcast interview of Ross Jebson. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Ross. I uh, originally started gaming back in 1972 when I picked up a really inexpensive copy of the Battle of Waterloo from Avalon Hill. And that started me on the long road down. In the meantime, between 1972 and now, I started my own distribution company in Canada. Um, uh, I was actively, actively gaming at the time, which is how I got sucked into starting the company in the first place. We were looking for games cheap for ourselves, just for our buddies. And Anyways, one thing led to another, and it became a profitable opportunity. So I continued to do that for, for quite a while. And then back in uh, 1999, uh, the, there was a whole exchange rate issue with the Canadian dollar and U.S. dollar, and it became more profitable for me to get out of distribution. And when I did that, Steve Jackson was very, very disappointed at the fact that I was shutting down my company. So he offered me a job, which is kind of him, but I didn't want to move to Austin, Texas, which is where Steve is, of course. Uh, and he, at the time, the Internet was growing at such a rate that he was willing to let me stay where I was. You don't work exclusively for Steve Jackson Games, though, as mm-hmm. because you're an independent contractor. Correct. Who else do you work with in the gaming industry? Any names that we would recognize? Yeah, well, yeah quite a few. There's, uh, uh, I officially have a contract with a company called uh, Publisher Services Incorporated. And they're a fulfillment company that does services for game publishers, so adventure gaming publishers primarily. So people you would recognize, such as White Wolf and Guardians of Order and Eden Studios, Market Waste Productions, Sovereign Press, Dorkstorm Press. Now there's uh, lots of little guys that are maybe not quite so familiar, uh, Dragonfly Productions, uh, a company called CCP Games, who uh, of course do the EVE Online game. Uh, we also do the all Monty Cook's products or Mahavik Press and Art House. So quite a bit of product. What I do primarily for publisher services is uh, I'm the hobby distributor rep. So I go and I sell all the product lines, including Steve Jackson games, to the distributors, who then in turn sell it to retailers, who then in turn sell it to you. You go to a lot of conventions. I uh, do. I remember getting phone calls from you from Origins and Gen Con and Essen and Dragon Con. What's your favorite convention to go to? Well, when I go to conventions, I'm usually going to conventions on business. So I'm there repping myself, uh, that is repping the publishers that that, that I deal with, to the distributors. So I'm there primarily doing that. I'm not there to game. So there's a difference between the conventions that I personally would like to go to uh, because they have the stuff that I geek about <laughs> as opposed to the ones where I get the most work done, which is you know good for the commission check. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So if, if what you're interested in is what I personally would like to go to, well, I, I like going to Historicon, where all the historical miniatures are. I like going to Cold Wars, again, another big historical miniature scene. I'd love to go to any convention in England, well, the UK, because tons of miniatures. Right. <laughs> you know, you know, but, you, but if I'm talking about business, the, the big ones are, are Gen Con in, in Indianapolis in the summer, and, of course, Essen in Germany. Thousands and thousands of people. From a business standpoint, it's great. Right. You can wander around, you can see where the huge lineups of people are, and you know, oh, that guy's got some good product. And maybe you should go check out them. <laughs> <laughs> you work with a lot of gaming companies, from really, really big like White Wolf to really, really small. Do you see any new games coming out in the near future that you expect to make a big splash that maybe our listeners haven't heard of? Uh, you know, there's there's a downturn in the role playing market that's been it's been subtly declining now for the last four or five years, and, but it's a fairly dramatic drop off in the last year I've noticed. Yeah, and I'm sure everybody's noticed that. Yeah. Uh, but one of the games that came out last year, the Serenity role playing game, did extremely well. It's a brand new role playing system. It, it uses a D2. I mean, it's it's, it's brand new in concept. Um, it didn't sell well because it was a brand new role-playing game that used a D2. It was the license right. that really pushed that product. But that opened the eyes for a lot of people that were into the movie or into the TV series. It opened their eyes into role-playing. So I expect that the Battlestar Galactica game that uh, uh, Markowitz Productions is doing, it's coming out using the same system, mm-hmm. will have the same wide appeal. Uh, so what what's really important with that is it gets role-playing games into mass market locations all over the world, right. not just Barnes & Nobles in, in the U.S., but it gets it into major chains all over the world. And that opens the eyes of lots of consumers to role-playing. So I think we're going to see a little bit of a resurgence of role-playing just because of that type of game, licensed items. It's right. good. Uh, other than that, I mean, we've got uh, uh, we've got White Wolf, who is merged with a company from Iceland. So they are now refinanced. They've got lots of money to start doing R&D work. I think we're going to get to see some pretty impressive things coming out from them. Uh, they've, they have the, uh, the EVE collectible card game. Uh, which which is done fairly well. It's based on the EVE Online game. Uh, but we're going to see more games of that sort coming out. So we'll see more, uh, maybe not card games, but more licensed crossover from online to paper and paper to online. Um, so the, 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 I don't know, it's a pretty exciting time, really, when you think about it. There's, there's a lot of potential out there for for the hobby business to do quite well. Coming a little bit closer back to Austin, Munchkin is obviously the thing that pays all of our paychecks to a large degree. But it's not really a collectible game. It's not a licensed game. What do you think it makes Munchkin so popular? Mm-hmm. Well, two things. First of all, Munchkin is fun. It pokes fun in the most popular, wide-known genre, which is fantasy role-playing. Mm-hmm. Millions of people have played D&D in their lives. Millions and millions of people have played it. So there's a huge market built there for somebody to take a a shot at. Nobody really has done it before. Uh, The game mechanics are simple. 
it's a good game. It's not super complicated, and it's fun. You can play it in an hour. You can get a bunch of guys together, and while you're waiting to go to a movie or waiting to start your role-playing session or you know, waiting for some guy who's late, you can play Munchkin. And it's goofy. It's fun. Um, you, know, you, you said it wasn't a collectible card game, and you're, you're right. It's not collectible in the, in the, in the uh, CCG aspect, but it is a collectible game. And there are so many different items out there that if you want to be a true munchkin, man, you've got to have them all. <laughs> so if you... I, I have people phoning me up asking about the Russian version because it has special Russian cards in it. Where can I get a Russian version? Well, you get to go to Smart Limited in Moscow and they'll sell you one. <laughs> but likewise, the, the Germans have tons and tons of promo items that they've done. We've done a bunch ourselves. And they're all linked to special rules in the game. If you get John Kavalik to sign your shirt, hey, you know, that's cool. And it's hard to get John or Steve or somebody tied down to do that. So if you're going to be the ultimate munchkin, you're going to be collecting lots of stuff. And, you know, that's good for our bottom line. <laughs> yes, yes it is. Perry Mason outwits the young iguana and the shifty olive. Hi, my name is Nicholas Vasek, and I am a deep cover agent inside Warehouse 23. Today I'm going to do another shameless plug. So the one-sentence summary is that Suro is an abstract board game based around a tile placement mechanic. It's abstract in the sense that the board and pieces do not represent anything. You don't have followers or citizens. You don't build an infrastructure of roads, settlements, or armies. It's just plain simpler than that. And sometimes it's nice to play a quick, simple game that isn't burdened with all kinds of crap and where the pieces are just markers and the board has no political boundaries. Suro is that kind of game, straightforward and enjoyable. Suro calls itself the game of the path, based on the idea that players are travelers along the many roads of life. Deeper explanation or symbolism isn't provided because the game is so abstract that a more specific visual image just wouldn't make any sense. Suro is similar to uh, Blockus, Rumus, Checkers, and games like that that are equally abstract. So people who enjoy those sorts of games will enjoy Suro for many of the same reasons. Likewise, fans of games such as Carcassonne and Gaos may enjoy Suro for its core tile-laying mechanic. Anyone, whether they've played tile-based games or not, should find Suro intuitive and easy to understand because the rules are short and quick to learn. The components of Suro include one game board, 36 tiles, 8 markers, and the rules sheet. That's it. All these components are high quality. The game board and the play tiles are made of thick, rigid cardstock, and the art is clean and elegant in a zen sort of way. The art conveys all the necessary information that you need to play the game without any extra clutter. The game board is a grid of 36 squares. Each tile is square-shaped, and it's, they're sized to fit on the board exactly. There are eight endpoints evenly spaced around each tile, two on each side. Four paths connect these eight edge points, crossing the square or curving from one side to another or looping back to the same side. The board and tiles are colored in earthy tones, mainly browns, oranges, and reds. I find this color scheme is really easy on the eyes without being ambiguous. So you can easily discern the background from the path on each tile. You can just glance at 
any given tile and pick out the important information. The markers or playing pieces that represent each player are multicolored, flat-bottomed stones carved with a hieroglyphic dragon character. When you set up at the beginning of the game, each player draws three tiles and places their marker wherever they want on any of the 48 starting points around the edge of the board. During each player's turn, you place a tile on the board in front of your piece. Then you slide your stone along the path created by the new tile. If any other pieces also happen to connect to the new paths of this tile, they move as well. Pieces continue moving until they reach the end of the path. And the last step of your turn is to draw back up to three tiles. When players move off the board, they are out of the game. The last player to leave the board is the winner. These rules are really simple, but the strategies can be quite deep. Finding the best way to play a tile can become an interesting and fun puzzle. The most basic strategy, and the first thing that we picked up when we played the game, was to never let your fate be under the control of someone else. Whenever someone places a tile, any other players that they can move will probably go somewhere unpleasant, so don't let yourself be in the position of the victim. A more advanced strategy involves creating a small section of the board that is cut off from the rest of the board, and then you can try to trap an opponent in that space. Once your opponent's cornered in a tiny area, they must inevitably move themselves out of play. Or alternatively, you might try to isolate yourself in a subsection. The other players must then share the remainder of the board and they're going to quickly consume the available space and leave you as the last person alive. But there's more intricate and deeper strategies than that. Every time that I've played the game, I've discovered new tricks and new methods to achieve victory and it's infinitely replayable as far as I'm concerned. Every game will have different scenarios and complex situations arising every turn that make it interesting and fun to play over and over again. In conclusion, Suro is fun and easy to learn. The rules are uncomplicated, yet the strategies are deep and interesting. It makes a good addition to any game closet. I highly recommend it. It plays for two to eight players ages eight and up. Suro is published by WizKids and is available at Warehouse 23 for $25. Go buy a copy. Beijing is protozoan, and the penguin is cosmic. Paul was pretty busy at Games Expo, but he did find time for a few interviews, and here they are. We're here with Oscar Garza of White Wolf. Uh, so, Oscar, what do you do for White Wolf? I'm the organized play coordinator for Vampire the Eternal Struggle. Um, basically, second in command for the marketing department. Uh, Mike. Responsibilities include organizing volunteers and managing events and making sure everything goes off around the world. Okay, you work with Vitas and uh, do you do anything with the EVE online card game? Um, I've been consulting Zach Walters as the organized play coordinator for the EVE CCG, uh, helping him uh, set up the tournament structure and the incentives programs for the organizers and for the people who run demos and people who receive demos as well. So how did you get involved in White Wolf? Uh, I played a V-Test for eight years before I joined the company and organized qualifiers and multiple tournaments for five years before that. Um, when the job opening for the organized play coordinator came up, I submitted an application and then it so happened that I was graduating college at the time and uh, I would uh, 
I wanted the job, and they ended up giving it to me because I, you know, I was qualified for the position, and uh, I could move to Atlanta, and it wasn't tied down or anything, and I enjoyed traveling. So, other than obviously doing a lot of VTest stuff, what other games do you play in? I'll tell you what, before I joined White Wolf, I didn't play any other games, but now that I have, um, I'm in a weekly D&D game. At one point, I was playing a weekly vampire game. Um, the captain of the company pool team. Uh, I play poker pretty often, but uh, mostly beat tests on the on the weekends and uh, at conventions, tournaments. We're here with Brennan Taylor of Indie Press Revolution. So, uh, what is Indie Press Revolution, and what's it all about? Uh, Indie Press Revolution is a uh, consortium of small press publishers. Um, we have about 40 different game publishers who are signed up with us right now, and we run a web store where you can buy their games direct. And we're also working on um, getting the, those games out into the retail channel now, which is why we're here at the... Uh, the Games Expo. As the name implies, Indie Press Revolution doesn't handle the normal run-of-the-mill traditional games. What kind of games would we expect to see if we went to IndiePressRevolution.com? Um, we have a lot of games that are from one or two or three-man shops, basically. Uh, people who are doing it themselves uh, who've put a game together and are running uh, you know, very small print runs. Um, so you, the, the popular games that we have right now are uh, Spirit of the Century, which people might have heard of. Um, we also carry Dogs in the Vineyard, uh, The Shadow of Yesterday, a number of other games uh, of that ilk. Um, we do carry some games that are D20 as well. Um, basically anybody who's uh, trying to, to get uh, their games out there and, and may have a difficult time doing it, we're, we're there to help. Um, I also screen all the games before they go up on the site, so I make sure that they're uh, up to a level of quality that I'm comfortable with before I put them on the site. So you know that you're getting something that's pretty good. Spirit of the Century and uh, Ducks in the Vineyard are two games that I personally own. Good stuff. Um, but IPR also does a podcast. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I do the podcast together with uh, Paul Tevis, who does uh, the Have Games Will Travel podcast. And our podcast for uh, IPR is called The Voice of the Revolution. And uh, we do game reviews. We do interviews with game designers. Uh, Paul and I talk about the games that we're currently playing and, uh, and also uh, news and updates about uh, Indie Press Revolution although that takes up less of the podcast than the rest of it. <laughs> it's www.thevoiceoftherevolution.com. Highly complex and hard yeah. to understand. <laughs> All right. In addition to being a um, seller and a distributor of games, you're also an author. What have you contributed to the revolution? Uh, my newest game is called uh, Mortal Coil, and that came out last summer. Uh, it's a supernatural-themed uh, game in which the players get to sit down. When you sit down, you create the setting. So it, it's unknown what the setting of the game is going to be until you. there's a collaborative process where everybody puts together what the setting of the game is. The only rule is that there has to be some sort of magic in the setting. And then as you're playing, you actually have tokens that you can spend to add new facts about how magic works in the game. So the way the, the magical setting builds itself uh, through gameplay, basically. Nifty. All right, well, thanks for talking with us, and uh, look forward to more stuff from the Indie Press Revolution. Hell is impotent, and the ostrich is purple. And now it's time for Ask Dr. Krom. We've slightly tweaked the format a little bit. Instead of asking multiple questions and then waiting episodes and episodes and asking more questions, we're just going to do one question per episode until we drain Krom's brain completely of all knowledge. This time around, the question is from Astacask. 
One common complaint from people switching to GURPS is that they don't have a CR or challenge rating system to judge how much you can throw at the players and still expect them to survive. How do experienced GMs like Crom do it? How I do it, how a lot of the GMs I know do it, including some of the authors I work with, um, all of whom I think qualify as experienced, is really through a lot of hard work. You learn the system and you get very good at it. That's probably not a useful answer to the average person who maybe doesn't have the time to delve into groups and become an expert or isn't getting paid, say, like myself or an author, to be an expert. Uh, however, an actual numerical challenge rating or something similar would be very difficult to give owing to the way GURPS rates things. So it's a little trickier than it might seem at first. For instance, in GURPS points, you might think would be a good basis for a challenge rating, but in reality, they measure all kinds of things. They have nothing to do with challenging anyone else, some of which are only really useful for oneself. You know, some certain person abil personal abilities won't help you challenge anyone at any fighting or otherwise. And so points go out the window. So what's that leave? Well, it leaves individual scores that are effective in the kind of conflict you're likely to get into. And let's confine it to combat, because that's usually what challenge rating means. In combat, there are several things that matter. Notably, your roll to hit, your defense roll, your damage roll, your ability to soak up damage, and various things that mitigate these factors and various things that add special effects. And the simplest way to match two sides in a conflict is to make sure that each of these, for each side, is roughly in the same range, roughly the same amount of damage, roughly the same chances to hit, to defend, so forth. If you want, you can often mix things up a bit by improving one area and kind of throttling back on another. For example, if somebody's very good at striking all the time, you might not want to make them as good as damaging. So that way, they go up against somebody who does what we call an average amount of damage or an average, has an average chance to hit in your campaign, this opponent might strike more effectively but damage less often, or another opponent might damage more effectively but strike less often. And that's fine. That's still balanced. Um, when you want to make things a little more challenging, you tweak the opponent up more than one area, or perhaps more areas than you've tweaked them back. So maybe the opponent is now better at striking and defending and damaging but it's not quite as good as taking damage and has no special abilities to throw on top of an attack or what have you. And that produces you know, an opponent who's a little bit more dangerous. Uh, conversely, if you want to make an opponent less challenging, you do the opposite. You tweak back more areas than you've advanced or perhaps just make one little tweak backward. Where it gets complicated is when you're trying to estimate numbers because challenge ratings in lots of games don't merely rate what's one foe do against one PC, or what does this monster do against that monster, but what if I have 17 of these and 42 of these other ones? Well, that gets difficult because GURPS is somewhat realistic at heart, and getting surrounded or being outnumbered is ultimately bad, even if your opponents are trivially, you know, trivially, tri trivially challenged to the point where they can't really hurt you at all. Because somebody can get lucky, you get a lucky shot. They can just grab you and inconvenience you when a really dangerous opponent comes at you. So there's no quick way to say, okay, if you've got lots of opponents, how do you adjust my philosophy? The only thing I could say is that if you've got lots of opponents, it's usually a safe bet they should be less challenging. If you have few opponents, it's usually a safe bet they should be more challenging. Um, how much less, how much more is a matter of feel. But specifically in the area of combat, if you go much more than two-to-one odds, even if the opponents are inferior, the player characters are liable to get overwhelmed. 
Likewise, if the player characters have great numerical odds against an opponent, that better be a very tough opponent, uh, perhaps even unfairly tough, or it's going to be overwhelmed. Um, I would say that you probably want to keep your opponents in the same general range of numbers as your PCs within a factor of two if challenges have been adjusted, as I've said, and probably not go much beyond that unless there's a tactical situation to change the picture, like a narrow doorway that's hundreds of little imps charged two at a time. Then even one hero might be able to hold it. So I hope that's helpful. Thanks, Krom. If any of you out there have a question for the doctor, you can either send it to Fenordcast at sjgames.com with Ask Dr. Krom in the subject line, or stop by our forums in the Fenordcast section. There's an Ask Dr. Krom thread. And that is episode 8. Join us next time for episode 9. We'll have content from the Gamma Trade Show, another Ask Dr. Krom segment, and all kinds of other good stuff. The Nordcast is a production of Steve Jackson Games. All music written and performed by Tom Smith at tomsmithonline.com. Mm-hmm.